Good morning. Would you join me in a time where we are looking to God and his word to exalt in him and exalt in his truth and to shape our lives around the person and the work of Christ. To do so, I ask that you, if you have your Bibles, will turn to Ecclesiastes. We'll be in chapter four today, the entire chapter. I'm going to read it. And if you don't have a Bible, we keep them in the seats in front of you, and you are welcome to take that. Um, But Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and our text today is going to be verses 1 through 16. All right. The Word of God says this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he has been poor. I saw all the living who who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's pray again. Oh Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to know our frame, that it is but dust. I pray that you would open our eyes to the reality of what is eternal and what is not we pray together that you, through your word, will, will, and we believe you, we believe that your word will not this morning come back void. I pray that we would course correct as your word instructs us. I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction needs to land in our hearts and on our lives. I pray that you will not allow us to go through this life with ears stuffed up, eyes closed to the reality of heaven and waste our lives. This vapor, this breath. I pray that your gospel will be sweet to us this morning and transforming and life-giving. 
hope giving. Father, we pray that you would use your word to encourage the downtrodden, the discouraged, those who come here today not having hope. Lord, would you give them hope today through Christ? Would you help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ? Our hope is not wrapped around a person other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would leave here with our hope firmly in him. And we thank you. We thank you for the grace that you have given us in Jesus. Help me to preach right now as a dying man, man to dying men. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, I don't want to take away from the seriousness of this message. It's a really serious message, but I'm going to start it with a question that might seem a little flippant, but it's not. You'll see where I'm going with this. How do you open a banana? How do you peel a banana? Think of it right now. You got it in your mind? Thinking of how to, how did you peel your last banana? If, if you were to Google the words, you're doing it wrong, or uh, the acronym YDIW on YouTube or Google it, you'll find about a million different pages and channels and clips showing you things that you do commonly, that we do commonly, things like washing our hands or peeling a banana or get ways to get rid of the hiccups and you will see that you've been doing it wrong your whole life. <laughs> and then you might be shown the right way to open a banana, to peel a banana, um, or to get rid of hiccups. Personally, I like stuff like that because I feel like I do everything the wrong way. Um, and so it's helpful to me to see how someone else does something. And I, I'm like, oh, that's, that's, how, that's how you do that. I've been, I've, I've, been, I've been peeling a banana from the stem my whole life but monkeys turn it over and they open it that way and they must know, right? So that's how you open, that's how you peel a banana. I like tips and tricks showing us how to do things the right way and how not to do things the wrong way. But of course, 99% of the hits you'll get from a search like that uh, will either be about something that doesn't really matter, like peeling a banana. Or maybe the tip itself will be suspect, like maybe that's better, maybe, maybe it's not you could still do that and you might still be doing it wrong. What if we had a book that showed us how we might be doing the most important thing ever wrong? And then showed us how to do it right. What if we had a book that showed us all the wrong ways to do life? And then the one way to do it right. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to have a book like that? Friends, I'd like to introduce you to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's exactly what this book does. The preacher, the writer of this book, who I'm confident is Solomon, has taken a good hard look at the way we do life and the things that motivate us, the things that we live for, the things that we even die for and spend our years toiling for and he has shown us what is vanity. And the benefit of spending time in Ecclesiastes is the course correction that this book offers to our lives. You don't have to do it wrong, friend. You don't have to do it wrong for 75 years. And then wake up one day when the end is drawing near and see all the time that you have wasted grasping after the wind. As if the wind could be held 
And as if your life and your career and your legacy is forever, only to have it all blow away. You could do it that way, but God has provided you a window into true wisdom. He has shined his light on life so that you might not waste yours and so that I might not waste mine. Oh, this is a good book to study this summer so that we might stop doing it wrong and live our lives with our hearts set on what really matters. This is our fourth sermon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Before we dive into the particulars of chapter four, which we're going to do this morning, maybe it would be good to think, about, think for a moment about where we have been. The first big lesson, I think, of the book of Ecclesiastes has to do with one of its key words that's repeated throughout, and it's the word vanity. You might recall a few weeks ago that we decided that the, the Hebrew word underlying that, the word chabel, doesn't mean pointless, like some translations have it. The Hebrew word underlying the English word in the ESV literally means breath or a wisp of smoke. And I think what the preacher wants us to see is that things we think are of ultimate significance, things like our job, our jobs or our bank accounts or buying a new house or, or, or the legacy we might leave behind, they are far less significant than we think they are. And the reason that is good the reason that it is good to see the brevity and the limited significance is that seeing that might help us invest in things that are eternal and view things rightly, view temporary things as they really are, even good gifts from God, temporary things for what they are. And the preacher uses all kinds of ways, all kinds of techniques to make his point. Uh, he uses the rhythms of creation. He, how, how, the, how the sun rises and sets and then rises and sets and then rises and sets and then rises and sets, no matter what you do. He uses our own memories and the way we have forgotten people who have come before us. Do you have a nice house? Do you know who built your house? Do you know the story behind your house? If you do, it's only because you looked and cared. We don't generally care. We are forgotten. Even things that we build are forgotten. He uses our own sense of perpetually being unsatisfied. We, we achieve this goal, and what do we do? What do you do when you achieve this goal? You set the next one. What do you, what do, you do when you hit that, that level that you wanted to be at? You long for the next level. Perpetually, we are not satisfied. We get that job that we wanted forever. And then two years in, we want another job. We're never satisfied. All of this shows us that life is a vapor. These things around us do not have ultimate significance. Then beginning in chapter one, verse 12, and all of chapter two, the preacher gets into specific things that we commonly invest everything into our whole hearts. Things like the quest for knowledge, you know, the quest and our careers and our achievements and the accumulation of wealth and things like pleasure and comfort. These things which Ecclesiastes shows us are indeed good gifts from God and beautiful in their time are not meant to be pursued as if they are ultimate. They're not gods. They're not meant to be pursued as Sam Parker showed us last week out of their time. That's how we do it wrong. We pursue things like money and relationships and pleasures 
so that we can put them in, remember that illustration, our big duffel bags and walk through life with them in our duffel bags only to walk right off the cliff one day and none of it mean anything. Yet God has put eternity in our hearts, as you can see in chapter 3, and we tend to want to apply that God-given sense of eternity to things that are not eternal. That's what we do. Things that are a mere vapor, things that are vanity, and that, friend, is doing it wrong. Are you with me? Big things. Today, from chapter 4, the preacher presses in even deeper with several, I think, four ways to do life wrong. And then he gives the one right way to approach things. So that's how we walk through this chapter, how we're going to walk through this chapter, chapter four. Four ways to do life wrong and one way to do it right. And as we do, keep in mind that we are not overstating the importance of this. You, you just can't overstate the importance of this. I don't think we can. It's, it's not merely how to open a banana. This is how not to waste your life. Okay. In verses one through three, he tackles one very wrong way to do life. And I'll just read those verses again. They put them before us. The preacher says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now, I, I want us to think deeply about this because I think we sometimes read something like that and think very simply about it, but the, the preacher's making a very deep point. He is not simply saying that oppression is bad. That's, that's not the main thrust here. A lot of people read that. That's what they think. The preacher's despairing life because of the disproportionate like, distribution of power. There's people who oppress and there's people who are oppressed. Of course, he is seeing oppression as evil, but he's going deeper with this. He's lamenting both sides of that dog-eat-dog thing. The preacher says that it's actually better not to be than to live in the struggle of oppress or be oppressed. Now, that's a strong statement, so let's press in, right? The word oppression means to take advantage of someone else. It is to live in such a way that you have maximum benefit, that you, 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 you are angling yourself so that you get the most benefit out of something and somebody else gets the detriment. You get the benefit, somebody gets the detriment. That's what it means. You don't have regard for others. You don't care how your actions affects others. You, you, you don't care about their tears so long as you have what you want. It's, it's living in such a way that you're not concerned. You, you are totally concerned about your own needs and you don't have due regard for the needs of others or how it affects others. Now, I, I think you should think of oppression here, not just in its like most obvious and extreme forms. Like, Human trafficking is certainly oppressive and it's oppression. But if you only read this and you think about human trafficking, you, you might not see how it applies to your life, right? Because you're not, I hope, a human trafficker. And you're against human trafficking and you think human trafficking is evil and you think human traffickers are evil, right? You with me? Everybody agree? We're there? You could read that and think, doesn't apply. I'm not an oppressor. 
You, you, you could think about, you're, you're against slavery. You're against the, 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 the caste systems of the world. You're against forced prostitution. You're against totalitarianism. And all those obvious and very big forms of oppression. You want nothing to do with those sorts of oppression. You're not that sort of oppressor. I get it. Yet oppression, as it is used here, essentially means taking advantage of someone. Uh, oppression is viewing this life and approaching your work and your, your efforts like... Life is a dog-eat-dog thing. This is a dog-eat-dog world. And if you don't look after your own interest, no one will. Life is a competition. Life is a competition. And in a competition, some people win and some people lose. And you just want to be the one who wins. You don't care about the one who loses. That's the perspective that leads to oppressing others. You come into this business deal and you have no intention of straight up cheating anyone, right? You don't want to cheat anyone. You're honest. You don't, you don't want to cheat anyone because you see cheating as sin, but you will certainly view it as a successful day or a, a great deal if you come away with a great advantage and they leave that table with a disadvantage. It's a big win if you have a big advantage and they have a big disadvantage. You, you, that's oppression, and there's so many ways to think about this. You're not going to force yourself on somebody. You know that's wrong. But if you can sweet talk and manipulate somebody so that they do something you want, but they will regret, that's, that's, that's oppression as it is used here. And that's the kind of perspective Solomon is needling into. That's true oppression. Living for yourself with no concern of the needs or the interests or the good of others is oppressive. The preacher goes so far as to say that it's better not to be born than to live like that. It's better not to be than to live in a dog-eat-dog, oppress-or-be-oppressed world. If you're, if you're living with your perspective primarily on your own needs, with no regards for others, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And one day you will see that. And how good it would be if you saw it today. Look at verse four for the next way you might be doing it wrong. Living and working motivated by envy is vanity. It's a wisp of smoke. Now we could really press in here because I think that many of the reasons we work, in fact, the preacher says the, way, the reasons we work is because we see life not just as a competition like the oppressor sees it, but like a comparison, like the guy with envy thinks of it. We want to do well in comparison to our neighbor. Or well in comparison to our coworkers, or well in comparison in comparison to whomever. It's a faulty view. To, it's a faulty way to view this life, and the preacher wants us to know. And you know what? We can all do this. We can all do this. E- even even I can do this as a pastor. Even in my pastoral work, I can do this. Even pastors fall into this trap. I can see myself as a good pastor because I'm not as bad as that pastor is. Or because I'm better at whatever they are in whatever skill than that person or that pastor. My motivation for work can drift from a desire to please God and help people by faithfully preaching his word to his people with all my heart to a desire to be seen as a better preacher. The, that eye on other preachers or other churches or whatever is envy. And that's just an example that applies to me because that's my work. You can fill in the blank for what that might look like for you in your context. What that looks like for you in the ranching world or the academic world or the corporate world or that world at the place where you work. 
or even the world of your extended family. I've seen this. The eye of doing it better than your siblings or doing it better than your parents or your cousins. That tinge of joy that you feel, that evil joy you might feel when you know your neighbor is not doing as well as you are. That's the perspective Solomon is addressing. Toil motivated by envy. You know that old joke about two guys getting ready to run from a lion in the arena? They're getting ready to be thrust out into the arena to be eaten by a lion. There's this lion out there. He's pacing back and forth. And these two guys are getting ready to go out there. They know that they're going to be doomed. One guy is just depressed. And the other guy's like stretching and fixing his boot and getting ready. And the other guy says to him, friend, it is hopeless. Why are you doing that? We cannot outrun this lion. And the other guy says, I don't have to outrun this lion. I have to outrun you. Our tendency is to look around like it's a, a comparison or a competition. And the preacher wants us to know that's vanity. And you can see the similarity here between envy and oppression. Oppression is living for yourself in such a way that you take advantage of others. There's harm at play when you think about oppression. Being motivated by envy is to live for yourself in such a way to outdo others. You're not trying to harm them. You just want to beat them. Like win over them. Not, not, yeah. You just want to win. But both ways view life as some sort of contest. Do you see? I don't just want a nice house because nice houses are nice. I want a house that's nicer than yours. Because then I will feel more significant. My life is more than a wisp of smoke if my wisp of smoke is more significant than your wisp of smoke. My life is less of a vanity if my vanity is more significant than your vanity. Do you see the folly of it? Verse 4 says it's a grasping of the wind. Now, so far, this seems to have only addressed highly motivated people. We've been talking about wrong motives for working hard, right? But the wise preacher also knows, as you can see in verse 5, that laziness is also a wrong and selfish way to do life. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's a really odd way to say that, but I think purposely so for shock value. The fool who lacks all motivation simply folds his hand. Instead of motivated by envy and you know, toil motivated by envy and work motivated by a desire for advantage, this guy has no ambition to work at all. He just wants to get by. Maybe he has seen the vanity of the rat race and hasn't been able to compete on that, or maybe he hasn't been able to compete on that level. Maybe he's tried it and failed, and so he just wants to bow out of that and let life go by. So he folds his hands, hands that should be working, and eats his own flesh. He, he lives in a way that is against his own good, his own well-being, his own flourishing. And we have words for that, right? We have words for that. Words like squalor and poverty and neglect. Now, of course, don't get me wrong. I know that many people live in the world of poverty who are not lazy. Perhaps most of the poor this world over are people who work very hard, but Many also live that way, a way that's harmful to themselves and to others in their care because they refuse to work. They have no ambition to clean up the mess. So they fold their hands and they eat their own flesh. I love, I love the broadness of the preacher. 
I love the broadness of Ecclesiastes. I love that he not only addresses the evil of selfish ambition that's characterized by hard and highly motivated and high caliber work, work that might be at the expense of others, motivated by the desire to outdo others, but he also addresses the evil, the evil of selfish laziness that is harmful to oneself and harmful to those under one's care. If that best characterizes your heart and ambition, friend, then you're doing it wrong, any of those. All right, the fourth and final way of doing it wrong is by doing it alone. So doing it out of oppression with a desire to oppress, doing it out of envy, doing it out of laziness, not doing it because of laziness, or doing it alone. This is the fourth and final way. Look at verse seven. He says, again, I saw... Vanity under the sun, one person has no other, either son or brother, and yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so they never ask, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So you have your oppressor who's motivated by the advantage he wants over others, and the ambitious guy who is motivated by outdoing others, and the lazy guy who's not motivated at all, and then this guy who has no interest in anyone else, he just wants to be rich and successful himself. Or he just wants to be alone. Think with me for a moment. What do all of these guys have in common? What do all of these men have similar to one another? The lazy guy, the envious guy, the oppressor, and now the guy who wants to be by himself. In a word, they're all living for self. And in the preacher's view, It would be better not to be born than to live for yourself. Whatever manifestation that might mean for you, whether that is the highly motivated, highly quality, high quality, shrewd corporate guy, or the guy keeping up with the Joneses, or the guy who won't even get a haircut, mow his own grass, keep a job, or the guy whose dream is a dream that only has one person in it himself, all these together are the same. There are all ways to live for self. And the preacher wants you to know, friend, it is vanity. You are not meant to live for yourself. Doesn't the Bible say in its opening pages, it is not good that man is alone. Two are better than one. And he's not just making like a romantic point there, two are better than one. He, he goes on to say, and three are better than two. It's bigger than that. So verses nine through 12 teach us, and I think that's the whole point of this chapter. God has not created us so that we can compete well in some contest of life. Life is not a, con- a contest. It's not a comparison. The Hunger Games is not a good allegory for life well lived. It's an allegory of vanity. It's not about getting the advantage. It's not about outdoing someone. It's not about getting that cabin so you can sit alone in front of your fireplace. Life is not living for self. That's not what it's about. And if you think about how the gospel works, you can see that so clearly. God in the gospel, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ has redeemed for himself, not merely individuals. He has not merely saved individuals but a people for his name. Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? God redeeming a people for his name. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain 
And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God who shall reign on earth. God in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, obeying the law perfectly, and then being slain in our place, laying his life down for ours, paying our sin debt, paying the sin debt of all who have faith in Christ and raising again, rising again in the resurrection. God is making a people for himself, a, a community, the, the church. So, not just about saving people. When Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't just about saving people. It was about saving a people. The antithesis to God's work and intent in the gospel is to live this life for yourself. However that might look for you, whether it looks like highly motivated productivity or whether it looks like laziness and squalor. If self is the buzzword of your worldview demonstrated by the way that you live, not just by the way that you talk. If that best describes what you're doing in life, what your days are really all about, friend, you are doing it wrong. You're not meant to go it alone. You were not created to live for yourself. You were not created to oppress. You were not created to outdo. You were not created to lie by yourself on a couch, zone out by yourself before an Xbox. You were not created for isolation. You were not created to live for yourself. You were created to live for Christ among the people of God, among the people of Christ, among, for the good of Christ's people, for the glory of Christ. That's what you were created for. And there are so many ways to waste your life. And there is only one way to not waste your life. And it's right here. The one way is Jesus. And that life not wasted is a life lived in community with God's people. And really, the work of the gospel is a work that destroys our desire to live for self. I love that. God through Christ so transforms us that we no longer want to live this life to oppress or to outdo or to fly under the radar or to go it alone. He transforms us through the work of Christ into a people who live in community for the good of others, for the good of one another. It's no wonder that Jesus said, you know how they're gonna know you're my disciples? You will love one another. Because the rest of the world wants to outdo, wants to oppress, wants to be lazy. You will love. That's the work of the gospel in you and in me. He transforms us. We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for one another and ultimately for the glory of God in Christ. Let me just wrap this up with a nod to how the Apostle Paul tied together God's awesome work of the gospel through Christ and our new focus of one another. It's a well-known passage. I've probably read it a hundred times from this pulpit. I wish I could read it a hundred more. Listen to it and consider how to do it right, how to do life right in community based on the saving work of our exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 10 says this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, 
any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one, and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in the heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, if you have been living this life for yourself, today would be an awesome day to repent and turn to Christ. Today would be a good day to stop wasting your life Today would be a good day to trust in Jesus and live your life the rest of your days for the glory of his name in the community of his people. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you by faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ. It is our confidence and our only confidence that Jesus Christ has paid our sin debt, that the blood he shed was bloodshed so that we could be in covenant relationship with you. That his body that was broken was broken for me and for these so that we could be in relationship with you forever. Oh Lord, would you help us to stop living for ourselves? Oh, let the, the words of Ecclesiastes ring home in our hearts and may we live for what truly matters. I pray for any here today who are wrestling with the questions. Oh Lord, I pray today they would have the courage to talk to someone. Me, one of the elders, a friend that they know is a strong Christian. Lord, I pray, I pray for them. I pray that your grace would break through. I pray that they would not think about anything else until they settle that question and turn to you by faith today. And Lord, help us, help us as Christians to live for one another. Thank you for the work you've done transforming our hearts so that we might see what is eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.